This is the Bodar Blast by the USS Decatur, with your host, Lieutenant Junior Raid, Daniel Earl. All views expressed on this show are not those of the United States Navy and made by the individuals who are on the show. All music used is used with the permission of the songwriter or is royalty free. This is a feature production of the USS Decatur and is made free to use and free for all the families and supporters of the USS Decatur DDG 73. Olden Dare. And welcome to the Bodar Blast. I'm Lieutenant Junior Gray Daniel Orlick, live from the USS Decatur. It's good to be back on the podcast again. Uh, it's been a little while since we last talked, so it's it's good to catch up, right? So on to episode 12 today, and I'm very happy to continue on with this project. Um, it went from a crazy idea last year to now we're 12 episodes in, and we've got a lot of you listeners, families, everybody like that, uh, back at home listening. Uh, even though we're in port now, it still is great to have a great supporter base, and you get to find out what we do on a daily basis. So a little bit of what we've done over the last couple of weeks. Um, obviously, everybody's been able to take some leave. I know I was able to take some leave, and it was well-deserved. I think everybody got some time to be with family. Um, got some time to be alone <clears throat> and one of the things that they discussed during reintegration training that I think was important is even though spending time with family is great um, and it was great to see family again getting that time by yourself alone there's almost no privacy on the ship um, if you live down in a birthing which a lot of us do uh, then you've got at least 15 other people down there with you. Um, really the only privacy you have is maybe your rack. Um, and even then somebody can swing open the curtains whenever they want to ask you at 2 a.m. to go write an email, which has happened to me before. And it, it's, it's one of those, it's part of the job. And the lack of privacy is unfortunately one of the symptoms of the job. but. It is, uh, it's wonderful getting back and reintegrating and getting the opportunity to get some time by yourself. Breathe, relax a little bit, um, eat foods that you enjoy, see people that you want to be around. And that, that's, that's why this post-deployment leave is so important for uh, everybody that was on deployment. So everybody got at least two weeks of leave. And then we also had a maintenance period going on at the same time. So for those of you that have not been on board a Navy ship during a maintenance period, uh, scaffolding up everywhere, contractors all over the place, tape everywhere, uh, hoses everywhere. Because the beginning parts of it is the contractors will come on. You know, it's this stuff is contracted out years in advance, or at least a year in advance. The longer ones, like, you know, uh, the, the one that Decatur was in when we were in dry dock a couple years back, those are scheduled out years in advance. But uh, the shorter ones like this one at, you know, can be a year in advance because uh, over time, maintenance piles up and things need to be fixed. And sometimes you can't schedule it for right now and you need an outside entity to come in, uh, whether it be uh, our friendly neighbors over at Southwest Regional Maintenance Center, uh, which is active duty 
personnel that are technical experts in their field that come over and are technical representatives and help assist uh, our personnel in getting things fixed. Uh, or it could be people from what we call depot level, which is mainly outside civilian contractors, companies coming in to fix things, um, or technical expert companies uh, coming in to look at things. So <clears throat> that's how the maintenance period kind of goes where you know, first they come in, they have to set up all of the services because we're not going to have all of the services while we're all of, all of the hotel services, as we call them, um, that we normally have in port. Low pressure air and lighting and stuff like that. Um, water in some places. So they will come in, bring hoses in to be able to pump in off, off ship uh, air or water or other material uh, so that they can get the job done. Uh, and we get constantly swarmed by maintenance personnel <laughs> and that happens for about three to four weeks and uh, every day it's kind of a battle of making sure that quality assurance is done correctly and making sure that we are upholding the highest standards uh, of maintenance for our ship. Uh, our crew, our sailors have undeniable pride for this ship so making sure that the work done by an outside entity is the correct thing that's being done. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes calling people out on it um, and making sure that we are getting the highest quality work um, is important. And so every sailor plays a role in it, uh, whether they're working uh, hands-on with the technical representatives or whether they're coordinating uh, mechanical assistance or technical assistance. Uh, or whether they're working with the contractors uh, to coordinate uh, how efforts are going every day. There's a production meeting of how we're, how, what the progress is, how goes it. And, you know, some days, some days are better than others. Um, but in the end, Decatur got through it. We got some much needed maintenance done, and that's important for the ship. Uh, and making sure that um, the command philosophy of Commander Furtado right now is that we are very much a ship in sustainment and so we we can be that ship that can go out and do a mission whenever they need us to so being mechanically ready for that is a very important facet of being that sustainment ship so I think that we did a great job in coordinating this and coordinating efforts this was one of the cleaner uh, what we call CMAV continuous maintenance availability uh, that we've been a, that I've been a part of personally on this ship, so it was very helpful. And personally, some of my systems got fixed up, so that's that's the important part of that. So we also had outside visits from other uh, people as well. So in fact, we had um, the director of Naval Sea Systems Command Directorate uh, 09, which is uh, safety systems, basically. Uh, Ms. Shauna McCreary and her team um, actually did a visit on board earlier this uh, in August and got to tour a lot of our ordnance spaces, uh, see how our five-inch gun operates. Uh, Ms. McCreary, if you are listening, it was a pleasure having you on board and your team on board, and uh, we hope that we showed you um, the, the surface side of things because uh, Ms. McCreary doesn't work as much uh, with shipboard systems as she does with other systems. So getting to see the surface side of things, especially the Swiss Army knife that is uh, a destroyer 
in the Navy, especially USS Decatur, uh, being able to fulfill so many different types of missions, um, but also the expertise of our sailors, your sailors on board. Um, she was incredibly impressed the day that she was here, at least um, of the tour and the equipment, but not only just the equipment, the people operating the equipment. And that's the most important part of that is you can't run a warship with just a warship. You, it's the people that make the things go. So getting hands-on demonstrations and seeing how we store ordnance, how we, our, our safety systems, um, the, the tons and tons of layers of safety requirements and uh, rules that we follow to make sure that no one gets hurt, we're properly storing things, and that we are making sure that if we do need to deliver ordnance, it's going to be downrange <laughs> um, or off ship if we're offloading. So uh, it was a pleasure to have NAVC-09 uh, come on board and tour the ship, and we hope that you really enjoyed uh, our, our Daring Raiders and their presentations to you uh, around the ship. Uh, otherwise, we've had a lot of people leaving as well. Uh, it's that post-deployment flip. Everybody is leaving now uh, after deployment, and uh, soon uh, yours truly will be leaving as well. Um, but it is uh, it has been a pleasure to serve with everybody that has left recently. A bunch of junior officers, uh, sailors from all over the the ship. Uh, to those of you that did leave, uh, best of luck in your future travels and uh, to your to your future endeavors in the Navy. And as everybody says, and it is very true, it's a small Navy, so you will we will probably cross paths again. And uh, some people have spent five years at least on Decatur. So a change of scenery is important. Uh, it's good to move around and see new things. So uh, unfortunately, that flip has to happen. Everybody is moving on to bigger things after being out at sea. That normal, nor normally the turnover rate of people leaving and coming in is usually spread out throughout the process. But because we were gone so long, a lot of people were backlogged for either leaving or stayed until the end of deployment. So. We lost a lot of people, gained a lot of people at the same time. So a lot of fresh faces, too. Uh, so we've had a lot of uh, junior sailors come on board, some new junior officers as well. So we've got a lot of fresh faces, and Decatur is about to start the cycle all over again. So uh, it's, it's really awesome, especially uh, for me, having been here a couple years now, um, seeing the ship go through the entire cycle in my time here. Um, while my time is about to come to a close, it's been... Uh, awesome to witness us coming out of the dry dock and going into the basic phase and then the advanced phase and then on to the deployment and so uh, seeing it come full circle and now seeing all these new faces and me being the older person here uh, it's it's you take a moment of pause because you always remember the first day you came on board and how especially as a junior officer how wide-eyed you were and not knowing what you were going to do or where you were going and now the ship is very much home to me it's been i've been here for over two years and moving on is going to be tough because this is kind of the my it's been my first long-term command and the only command i've known so far so i think that's the same for a lot of people that are leaving or, uh, especially the people coming in uh, you'll get used to decatur and then you eventually leave but uh, we've been 
having a lot of award ceremonies. Commander Furtado has been uh, awarding a lot of people uh, Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medals uh, for their excellent service on board, especially those that made it through deployment. Uh, seven months is a long time. So that has been what, ha- what has been going on in the last few weeks that we've been gone, uh, getting back into the import routine. And as a lot of you are aware, our second uh, leave period was for a home port shift. So I'll talk about that more after our interview. But our interview today is with uh, Fire Controlman Aegis, uh, First Class Dante Hall. He is just a renaissance man of a person. I'm so excited I was able to interview him. It was funny. I was just walking through the PUA. I was like, FCA1 would be excellent to talk to. Um, in an interview and I asked him and he's like sure Um, because we have some great conversations during watch and you get to hear some of those now on the podcast so without uh, waiting much longer our interview of the week uh, it's going to be FCA 1 home and we are here with uh, FCA 1 so fire control fire controlman Aegis first class Dante Hall Thank you for joining me tonight, uh, FCA1. Um, first time we've kind of done this not underway. So uh, thank you for joining me in a uh, special import version of the podcast. Um, and like I told you before we started recording, like when I thought FCAs to bring on to this podcast, um, I was like, FCA1 Smalls, but you know, if he gets the limelight a lot, uh, we'll eventually tell his story. But like FCA1 Hall, you know, he's the guy that everybody loves but it's not gotten love much on our social media, and I think people need to hear your story, too. So, um, starting with your story, uh, what do you do on board? What's, what's kind of, what's your job, and then what's kind of the job of, a fire, uh, of an FCA? Okay, first of all, thank you very much for having me. It's a very uh, big honor to me. Um, the job of an FCA is we're sort of the, uh, the middle between a GM and an ET. We're sort of a newer rate, and they threw an A on the end. I'm not a large fan of them changing it, but we're um, in charge of the more technical weapon systems, so we're a little bit more computerized than a gunner's mate, but generally speaking, we still deal with fire control weapons. Mm-hmm. And uh, my specific job is I'm a CFLPO, so I'm overall in charge of, um, of CF, so um, what's going on with maintenance, what's going on with personnel, and um, you know, I answer directly to Chief Petty Officer Ferris. Nice. Not too interesting. You know, I'm sure that there's a lot of other jobs that are going to be jumping out of planes and swimming in swimming in the ocean, but I specifically work on radars. That's my background. And now I just overall work on uh, the fire control, the Aegis fire control for the ship. Nice. So starting at, at LPO, so what what's it like being a leading Petty Officer? What are some kind of your duties and I mean, does it ever get bothersome over time? Okay, uh, let me be honest, because there's no reason for me to come in here and not be candid. Um, I would be lying if I didn't say it was bothersome, but it's it's very rewarding. Like in the Navy, I don't. I've gotten you know a couple of awards here and there. You know, uh, I've got I've gotten a, a few pats on the back. So you kind of have to search for I don't know, search for purpose. In other ways and just uh, this is kind of cliche and it's really not a Navy answer but it's the truth that 
all of the uh, day-to-day things that you know are annoying just dealing with humans in general everybody's going to make mistakes and there's going to be little bumps that are going to annoy you but there's nothing more rewarding than um you know seeing your sailors glow up you know they'll they'll have a certain attitude or a certain issue or a certain problem and i found in my own individual life and in my career by extension that um Nobody really joined the Navy to, to fail or nobody does anything with the intention to fail. So there's usually just some piece missing with uh, in dealing with humans in general. And if you can find that piece, you can redirect. And sometimes I'm not the piece, you know, or, and often, I won't say often, but possibly I might be the problem if I'm going to be completely honest. But for those times that you're the right answer and you know, they've, they've ran their heads in a wall, but you're just the right answer for that person. And you, you know, you course correct them to do something good. That's, I get a lot from that. So to answer your question without, you know, being overly talkative on it, absolutely. It's frustrating sometimes. Um, it, it sort of feels like you're going to get the blame from the bottom and the top. And it just kind of goes with the territory. But it's um, what I get from it. You know, dealing with dealing with my little my my mini means as I call them, it, it far overweigh or far overshadows any of the negatives that come with it. Yeah. So you talked. I, I mean, the way that you summarize that it it is tedious at times, and leadership is always tedious. I mean, I, I feel you every day. Like some days I walk off the ship and I'm like, I hate this. I oh hate yeah. Because I mean, you're the administrative side. You're the branch between the administrative side and the guys. And right. The technicians and so getting that taste of starting to feel leadership and the, the burden of it is, is tough sometimes so I feel you um, but it really does sound like you found that purpose how do you I mean you have such a great mentality on this ship um, if I may say so but, I appreciate it I mean we've stood a lot of watch together I talk about this on the podcast a lot with, and I talk with people that I've stood with uh, watch with because you learn a lot about those people Right. But we stood a lot of watch together. We've had some great conversations. And uh, what really strikes me with you and, I mean, others have noticed, too, is just how positive you always are um, and how you find purpose in everything that you do. Um, and it, it's it's striking because, you know, I don't think anybody's ever seen you get mad, or at least I don't think I have. Um, how, do you, how do you find purpose every day in doing what you do um, and then what drives you and what drives that positivity okay um that's a that's a big question so i'm going to unpack it one thing at a time so um being positive i don't i wish i had a secret and i wish i could you know say i was so evolved and i've really figured everything out but through um you know i've had things not go my way in, in my life at times and you know i've you know, had a couple bumps in the road so really this is just not my experience day to day and my experience in the Navy so far is just not generally big enough to worry about and you can find like something that that you know I've heard talking to my grandparents and you know to people who've experienced life in their own ways is that um, like if you go through the day most of the day is kind of neutral like the last four or five hours, nothing has happened to make me extremely happy or extremely sad. It's just regular. And I would say 
taking the other part of that pie, most of the rest of it is pretty positive. So let's just to throw a number on it and to simplify it, let's just say 90% or the other 40% is positive. So now within that last little 10%, how much of that is really, really, really negative? Like some things might be annoying, something might be difficult, something might, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, ways to describe it, but when you look at your day, probably 20 minutes of it is bad. And if you have the mindset to look at those 20 minutes and make that your day, then you just ruined a whole 24 hours for 20 minutes. So my day-to-day experience really isn't that bad. So why would I be mad about it, you know? And dealing with people, if I come and I have a positive attitude, it lets the people that I deal with have a more positive attitude. And then that kind of snowballs because one, you're going to have people who are going to be more open and more willing to talk to you more and, and dealing with you is going to be a simpler process. So they're willing to do it. So now they're not going to be in bad spirit and have it. And I'm not a part of their 20 minute of bad day. Hopefully I'm not a part of many people's 20 minutes of their bad day. So now they're not going to do things to frustrate me. So now that's even minimizing the amount of negative interactions that I have even more. So to summarize, the Navy is really not that bad. And I've done, if I look at all of the things that it's given me and compare that to the things that it's taken away, it just seems as if, like, what would I have to complain about? You know, I mean, there's, Everything could always be better, but it's pretty solid. So that's why I'm fairly happy and finding purpose. Another another uh, different answer, um, hopefully to uh, your listening audience and, and to you, I hope you guys can understand that uh, my answers probably aren't going to be uh, normal answers. So, you know, maybe a different FCA will give you uh, the more uh, cookie cutter answers. But for me, uh, finding purpose, I don't, I don't identify myself. Like I was lucky in that, you know, I had a life before the Navy. And not to say that, you know, any, everybody had a life before the Navy. But I went to college, you know, I went, I, I did a bunch of things before I joined. And I think um, that shaped my personality to look at the Navy more as... I don't see that as my life, the Navy. Like, I look at it as something that I approach. I try to do my best. I try to be as good to people as I can. You know, I try to be as pleasant and positive as I can. But when it comes down to it, the Navy's not my life. Like, that's not my purpose. So my, I always just wanted to be, you know, through some uh, some issues and, you know, some things. As, as a child, I was always really motivated to just be financially good or, or to, to achieve things or to, to leave, an, leave an impact, like have people remember me. And that's sort of my purpose. And living that purpose is what I'm aiming for. So whatever happens within the Navy is just an extension of me trying to pursue my goals of just, you know, being successful. I want my family to be successful. I want my children. Hopefully I get some children here soon. But I want them to have, you know, I want to make a lasting impact 
in which uh, I can have generations down the road say, hey, like, my great-grandfather did this. Or people that I met, you know, if you go to another ship or you go to, you meet somebody who met me, they could be like, wow, you know, that guy was, whatever, insert whatever word it is, because I don't, I can't necessarily say that they'll say I'm great or they'll say I'm bad, but whatever it is, I want to be impactful. So that's sort of my purpose. And by extension, that's my Navy purpose. And I think there's another question in there, but I forgot it. I kind of started to ramble. Oh, no, no. Your, your answer is amazing because, uh, I mean, your positive attitude is, it's great. I, I, I find trouble in myself always trying to not let that, the, the 20 minutes a day that upset you or the, the people that sometimes you interact with upset you. And, you know, it's hard. Sometimes it can take over your day. And the way that you have the, the mental ability to just be like, you know what, I'm not going to let that 20 minutes bug me. I'm just going to move on. Is I mean, everybody should have that mentality, and I think that we would all be a lot more positive with each other. Because I mean, I you know I agree with you. Life on here sometimes bothers him, and trust me, I, I get annoyed quite often, especially when you know I'm uh, I'm trying to go home to eat lunch at home, and you know it's one o'clock or one thirty, and I haven't eaten lunch, and I'm starting to get hangry, you know, and you're like, man, I got some wings at home, I'm going to just eat them and be out of here, and we were supposed to do a half day today, but you just got to, can't let that bug you, you know, and then I I really like your idea of trying to leave um, not only just a long-lasting legacy, a positive legacy, too. Um, Everybody wants a legacy, but the legacy that you want to leave is important, because it's not, it won't always end up in history books, but people going from ship to ship and saying, hey, that FC one, FCA one all dude, that dude's pretty pretty cool. Like, and knowledgeable and just a memorable person and yeah. insightful. And that's, that's the important part. Um, and hey, you got me out of this situation or um, helped me out with this. Right. That's super important. But you talked about your life before the Navy. Yes. Um, you went to college. Where'd you go to college? What'd you study? I went to two schools. I was actually a bounce back, so I went to a JUCO for a little while as well. But I went to uh, Minot State and University of North Dakota. So, yeah, and I was in between. I was corporate fitness, excuse me, corporate fitness business management. So I wanted to work for Nike, and I ended up being a fire control, but I had nothing to do with it. But that was it. And, um, through some mistakes, gosh knows I have many of those. You know, that's the reason I went to so many schools. I thought I was thought I was gonna be a professional athlete. Obviously I'm not. So I uh, had to learn some hard lessons about you know, about priorities and and the, and the actions I was I was doing. Yeah, and I mean everybody mistake makes mistakes, but you've landed in a really great spot. So I mean <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're in a pretty, pretty damn good spot. But talking about um, your transition from college and then you ended up as an FCA, mm-hmm. what got you into the Navy? What were kind of the series? Of, what was the series of events that got you? There? Wow, this is this is such a such a story. Um, a little backstory. Um, growing up, I uh, <laughs> my uh, I had an interesting relationship with my mom. She got into some uh, some difficulties for a while, so it's kind of on my own. As a little kid, you know, I was on my own as a little twelve or thirteen year old, 
So uh, I moved back. My mom was doing well, but when uh, that situation happened, I, I moved back to a uh, probably not the uh, not the best place to grow up. So unfortunately, being around that. To some degree, I don't know if it shapes your personality, but to some degree, it shapes your behavior, especially being so impressionable. So, you know, I made, I bumped my head, made a couple of mistakes, did some stupid, stupid, stupid stuff. And, um, you know, I was generally a good kid. I, I was the same type of person, just doing kind of silly hood kid stuff. And the when I went to college, I sort of thought I got away from it. But after I graduated, I went home and, you know, fell back in a, the same peer group and the same silly habits. And, you know, through a series of events, I realized that I've always been an introspective person, always. So I kind of had to take a look at myself and uh, so much of the things or so many of the things I was doing, I was justified as, you know, like, it's not you know, no big deal, you know, but I wasn't doing things that were going to be, that were going to lead me to a positive future, you know, and I was working, you know, I, I had a pretty solid job, you know, I was a grant writer, work, you know, work corporate, but the, um, my time away from work, I didn't like the people I was around, well, I won't say that, because I, I love the people I was around, but I didn't like you know some of the things that they would do and you know, being involved or even being in proximity with that was negative for me so i got in a um you know a little a small a small uh, disagreement with with somebody and it just escalated so much because all of the people involved his family was you know the, his family that i grew up with was you know involved in some different things and it became it became a pretty serious situation. And at that point, I had to really think like, is this you? Like, how far are you willing to go? How far, you know, like, is this you? And I just had to get out. Like, I was like, you know what? If I stay here, then it's not gonna end up working out well for me. So I moved, and again, stupid habits, being a stupid little kid. I kind of, you know, started doing silly stuff where I was. And I moved to Sacramento. I'm from the Bay Area. I'm from Oakland. I, I grew up in Richmond. Moved to Sacramento. And doing stupid stuff in Sacramento. And one day I had to really have a conversation with myself and say, hey, like, you're a college graduate. Like, what's wrong with you? You know, like, if you don't, you don't figure this out, then because you can't be in the middle, you know? So if you don't figure this out, then you need to, it's not gonna work well. So I I realized the peace that I had when I was in college, like I went to North Dakota. So I was in North Dakota and, and it was just peaceful, it was quiet. Like I, I wasn't dealing with all of the politics and all of the crazy things that I'm seeing day to day. And just even seeing some of that stuff is just not healthy for your mind, you know? And coming back, I, I wasn't as mentally strong as I like to think I was, obviously, because negative, you know, bad behavior, bad habits. So I just said, you know what, like, what can I do to remove myself from this? So the um, my, my sister's father, 
like we have different fathers obviously was a master sergeant so you know growing up he was always a positive impact like my father was never in my life so he was kind of like my de facto um, father figure so uh, you know he would always talk to me about it and he'd be like hey you know like go be an officer in, in the military like go, like go do that and it didn't really it didn't sink in until um, it kind of became a necessity so at that point you know to to I don't know to end up where I wanted to be and not necessarily short term financially but just in general I felt like this was the best thing like go somewhere where I could just go put my head down and work because I played sports my whole life so I don't mind working and I could just dedicate myself and remove myself from all of the negativity and here I am and what was it like so you talked about you know your uh, I guess stepfather in a way um, driving you towards wanting to be an officer what what guided you to walking into that recruiter office and just saying I, I want to enlist uh, what guided me nothing really like once you know again I just, I don't know, I just went for it. Like, I'll, I'll attack it. I'll put my head down and go. And once I figured out what my objective was to remove myself from, you know, negative influences, that was one. Two, I wanted to have something that was going to be recession, excuse me, recession proof, and it was going to provide me with the ability to work if necessary. Hopefully it won't be to work um, or to have skills to get a high paying job following and tied in with the government and I'm really big into finance so you know I'm not trusting uh, you know some of the companies that I'm working with as I'm seeing some of those go under so once I found that objective I'll attack it like I was a linebacker so you know I'm not the uh, not the quarterback I'm not the uh, brains of the operation but what I will do is uh, see my objective and go attack it so that was easy once I figured out like what I was trying to what goal I was trying to trying to get to it wasn't really like I didn't hesitate he hesitates is lost right right so well yeah and you want you you chose a great line to kind of get away from uh, kind of the tough situation you were in you know not everybody chooses that choice and remains in that tough situation do you do you eventually want to go officer or are you enjoying uh, the enlisted life and want to you know eventually make chief and all that um, do I want to go officer? I, when I joined the military, I started, like, my recruiter kind of kind of whammied me in. I have a non-essential degree and, and et cetera, so it was such a long wait that I just went in. But after being enlisted, I don't I don't want to say this with any disrespect to you or anyone else or any or pumping up the enlisted side or anything, just being candid. But being an officer starting with that being an officer it seems like so much of your job is are just things that would like the the part of the navy that i hate like so much administration so so much like that and i don't necessarily it doesn't move me to shape the navy policy wise or like that doesn't move me and if that was and i get the uh, impact that a, that a good divo or a good department head could have on their division. I totally get that. But it was it always meant more to me to just 
deal with not so much the equipment but deal with the people hands on like dealing with my like seeing my my little troopers every day whether that's positive or negative or, or whatever like that's the that was a bigger mover for me than shaping the direction of the Navy more so so uh, in saying that I don't know that I don't I don't want to say that I, I couldn't do it like I don't think that I would be good at it because I, I really feel like most things in the Navy and most things in life if you just try hard to do it I feel like you can accomplish it most things like people could be an astronaut if they wanted to but in terms of um, you know day to day happiness and what I would actually want to do I think without having been an officer I think I would um, appreciate the enlisted side more but yeah. no disrespect to any no, officers no not at all I mean officer side is truly for everyone it's it's administration heavy and not everybody enjoys the administration there's a lot of chiefs that enjoy the technical side and leading sailors and you know that's totally fine and i i love that you are really about the sailors and that's the most important thing why a lot of people respect you is you care about the people that work for you and work with you and uh and you want to help them out on the ground, and you want to stay on the technical side. So, I mean, moving over to that, that technical side of things, um, why did you choose to be an FCA? Why did I choose? Oh, my goodness. I'll, I'll give you the short version of this story, too, because my whole everything just seems convoluted and netty. But um, I, I originally came in to be an MC, so I dipped in as an MC. And they were and my ASVAB score was, was solid so um, they uh, I think I kind of took everybody surprise, by surprise with how well I scored so everybody was on board with me being an MC because when I went in the office you know I was I want to MC 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 but when everything came back they were like we gotta you know we gotta do something else so um, they, they kind of pushed me in that direction but Simple answer, greed. So they uh, they offered me, you know, they, they threw me uh, a bonus incentive to uh, go ACF, Advanced Electronics, and me being the silly person I am, prioritizing money over happiness, as far as I know. I don't know. It might be terrible to be an MC, and, and being an FCA might be the best thing in the world. I guess I don't really know. But I just took the money. Uh, I thought like if I could take this and invest this and by the time I retire it'll be this and that was the reason so here I am got it so you I mean you you enjoy your job though and oh yeah yeah I mean you you get to work on a lot of the Aegis control system or the, the Aegis weapon system mm -hmm. um, and we can't get into too many specifics about what you work on but what's some some of the equipment that you own and I mean, how many maintenance hours is it? I mean, it's, it's pretty intensive, and it's yeah. a lot of computers and technology. Right, right. Um, what I own as a technician from my original job as a um, spy technician, I own uh, the spy, spy radar, so fire control radar, um, used for BMD, anti-air, you know, pretty, uh, pretty robust radar. Um, and with that, we have our computer suite and and our transmitter, so I get to dabble in, you know, a little bit of all of that, but um, divisionally, you know, the directors and 
the the spy computer or the um, sweet computers and the MCEs and well, I guess nobody knows what that is, but other cabinets that we'll just say. So um, pretty much everything that's going to be related to our ability to track something in the air and potentially shoot at it. Yeah, and I mean, what's the training like for that? Um, what is the training for that like? That's regular. Like a lot of people, something that I see is everybody wants people to think that what they do is so unique and special and difficult and it's not. It seems pretty difficult. You guys deal with a lot of high-tech, tough equipment. Whenever you guys talk to me about your technical stuff, it just makes me think. It's not, <laughs> because you have to understand that um, our technical background is built... If you would have went through the same thing as us, like they start us at the bottom and they tell us about electricity and then transistors and then PCBs and then computers and then... So we before we even get to understanding how they work with each other we already got all of that base base knowledge so we understand what radar collimation we all we understand what all of those things are so for someone who hasn't got that background it's like trying to remember like if i gave you a nine digit number you can count to nine you have you, you get that but trying to remember a nine digit number without a reference is difficult because you're just remembering nine symbols but if you understand what, what is that, 100 million? 126 million, 321, like if you understand the number system, it'll make it so much easier because you can associate that to one rather than nine individual things. And going through training allows you to understand and to, to process information differently. So if you were to take, I don't believe that I'm any smarter than you or anyone. I don't think that I, I think I'm a decently intelligent person, but anyone can do what I did if they have my background. Like it's it's years of school, don't get me wrong, but everything that we're learning is learnable, you know. So we just go through basic electronics and and it uh, ramps up till we go to C school. Then we learn our individual system, we learn our auxiliaries, and here we are. So me speaking to that is it would be. It would be terrible if you would listen to me talk about my system and you'd be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that did. Because that would suggest that I don't have a deep enough understanding and knowledge of it. Mm -hmm. But the majority of things that you would need to take away from that, and that's something that I'm not a huge fan of because everybody wants to complicate their stuff. What you need to know about what I do is you know you need to know the operation how it works and me talking to say fca1 any of the fca ones or something should be different than how i'm talking to you about it and ultimately it's just the radar like all radars are radars all transmitters are transmitters all computers are computers you know they all work the same so once you understand that and you've been through that it's easy to talk about it so it's not no disrespect and hopefully I'm not giving the secret away but no. I don't believe that my job is so so extremely difficult obviously it's going to require rigor and time to learn things especially for me because I'm not coming from an electronics background but it's just some school you know like it's the same as going to learn history the way I look at it 
yeah, you, you've kind of figured out a way to train your mind to learn the patterns and understand your equipment through patterns. Right. I mean, that's very impressive, and also the fact that you guys deal with a lot of um, just confusing equipment very often. Um, it's just, it's pretty awesome that you guys, uh, the, the equipment that you work with, I mean, no one that listens to this, a lot of people probably will never see that equipment in their life, and it's extremely high value, and it's, it's, it's awesome. It's something to be proud of sometimes when you're like, hey, yeah, I'm working on something that, you know, very small portion of the population um, ever works with. But, um, you know, going from your work life to uh, more of your personal life, I found out a little more today because we were talking about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're a cook. You enjoy yes. cooking. Yes. So where'd you pick up that hobby? And what, what other secret hobbies do you have? Oh, wow. Wow, 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 wow. Okay. Um, as I said a little bit earlier, I, uh, after my little little expedition by myself, I moved in with my grandma. So real classic, you know, classic family, old people. And they had those old values. So my grandfather was used to having home-cooked meals. You know, he was just used to it. That was his life. And my grandma, that was her love language. And she just loved to cook. Like, she loved to cook for people. Anybody would come over. And, you know, she didn't have the most money. But she would just love to... Anyone who came over, she would always try to cook for them and cook what they wanted. And that was just kind of her thing. So me, being, you know, the little uh, able-bodied child that I was with an aging lady and a grandfather who wasn't playing around and a family with high expectations of getting food when they came over, it kind of all worked. Like, it was a bonding thing for me and my grandma. So I still watch cooking shows today, you know. Poor Paula Dean got kicked off, but <laughs> all of them, Bobby, Pioneer, like the whole Food Network and, and History Channel, and so that's all I really do. So that was a, a, a good bonding thing for me and my grandma. But practically, she just didn't have the capability to do that anymore. So my grandfather was had expectations, like, I really need this food. Like, this is what I do. So it, it kind of all worked out. So I started off just making cookies or whatever. You know, I started baking, as I told you earlier. I started, that's why I cook like I bake. And from there, I just... You know, I, I started doing side dishes or making cornbread or making bread or whatever. And then it got, as my grandma got older and older and older, I started getting trusted with more and more responsibility to where I just started cooking everything. So that's it. That's my hobby. I have several hundred cookbooks. I just, it's my thing. Strangely, like people would not look at me and think that, but it's my thing. I love it. Yeah. I mean, cooking's great. I, I it's a window to the soul that not a lot of people know because if you make something like really good mm-hmm. and somebody loves it they're like oh man mm-hmm. like I need to try this recipe again um, and it's also a way like I mean you've seen like the movie Ratatouille like he blasts back in time to when he was a kid at the end because of that really awesome food it, it can bring up memories like home cooked meal family recipe do you have any family recipes that you've kind of picked up over time family recipes wow my uh my grandma was all over the place she was pretty progressive in that way so she was making thai food and filipino food and she was all over the place so uh what did i take from her that is her secret recipe hmm. well nothing was a secret she shared but man 
that's a tough question. Wow, I should have did my homework on this before I came on. Uh, uh, maybe uh, everybody loves her um, her chicken and dumplings. So I guess that would be it. Even though that's not a very popular dish, strangely, but that was her specialty. And everybody has everybody asks me to make it now because I make it like my grandma. Yeah. Not my favorite thing either, but whatever. Well, you talked about your when we were talking earlier today your repetition style. Oh yeah. You, the way you learn how to cook is by just doing it over and over again until you oh, yeah. get it right, and then you can replicate it. Now oh, we yeah. talked about substitutions. I'm a big for for everybody at home. I'm a big substitutions guy. So if I don't have something in the refrigerator and I need it, I'll figure out a way to find something that's very similar. Mm-hmm. Or like the the one thing that not a lot of people know about is actually you know. Buttermilk. If you don't have buttermilk, you just take vinegar some vinegar and some water and, and some yeah. milk. And there you I go. I have a buttermilk milk story for you too. Really? Yeah. Oh wow! You want it now? Okay. Yeah. Tell well, me. hopefully uh, the people involved will hear this. Um, I might send it to them. But um, on USS Last, I had uh, one of my favorite chiefs. It was her birthday. We're underway, so she wanted a red velvet cake. You familiar with red velvet? Yeah. Okay, so you know the things that are gonna make it red and velvety is gonna be the little uh, the little bubbles created by the acid working with the baking soda, right? Easy work. So um, in order to get that, you know, in some recipes will call for a splash of vinegar, other will just be buttermilk. It all it all roughly works the same. So on a, a mighty fighting warship like like my previous ship was. They uh, have a lot of missiles and a lot of bullets, but some of the cooking supplies that you wouldn't just ordinarily use, they don't have. Like buttermilk, buttermilk's gonna be spoiling all the time. It's, you know, it's just not practical. What are they gonna be making with buttermilk? They're not cooking biscuits every day. So they didn't have that. They didn't have high quality chocolate. They didn't have, but I didn't mind bunt, so they didn't have bunt pans. They had low quality butter. You know, they had all of, the, all of these things, no disrespect to their butter. Sorry, uh, Chief Pop. Sorry, uh, CSE, one of my favorite Chiefs as well. But all the components for this cake that she wanted, we didn't have. But she just knew, and I haven't done it on this ship because I don't have a house, but I used to bake every Saturday and just bring, like I made Krugaman last Saturday, or two weeks ago when I was on leave. But I would just find something I want to cook, and I don't really eat sweets, so I would just bake. 50 cookies or baked cakes and just give it away so she knew that you know I was a baking guy and she really wanted this and I was committed so fast forward we finally pull into port so I'm carrying around all of these cooking supplies so I now I have chocolate and heavy cream and all of these cookie things bunt pans and cupcake pans and all just a bunch of stuff not thinking that I'm in a Liberty port, so we're all, everybody's trying to go out and hang out. I'm walking around, clinking around with bunt pans, looking like a crazy person at the club with some bunt pans. <laughs> so fast forward, finally we make it to the ship, didn't get buttermilk, so made buttermilk. You could also use lemon juice. But, um, so made the buttermilk, everything, made my butter, made everything, scratch, 100% scratch cake. I guess I didn't make the chocolate, but whatever, 100% scratch, got a, four in the morning so it'll be fresh i didn't want to have a day old cake but i have watched so i'm in the neighborhood so um finally got it four in the morning made it hand beat it because we didn't have a didn't have a mixer the whole nine and a half so finally got the cake made 
cream cream cheese is another thing I forgot. So um, cream cheese frosting came out beautiful. I have pictures I'll show you one of these days. And I went sat in the Chiefs mess thinking that I know that she has watch, so she'll go in there in the morning and see her cake, you know, and be able to start her birthday off right. Boy was I wrong. Those Chiefs are maniacs. So I sat it in there and they and I would think it was simple enough to see a, a card underneath a entire bunt cake covered in plastic that clearly they're not getting red velvet cakes every day so it has to be for some purpose i thought that that would be enough boy was i wrong bad decisions i make those sometimes and in the end she only got a sliver piece of her cake and this is in the time frame between say seven in the morning and seven forty-five in the morning like they ate her whole birthday cake and she only got one piece after that cake that I went through multiple days multiple days of all type of foolish actions in order to get and she didn't really even get to eat it hey that's like the that's like the highest compliment though people like your bacon they yeah that's like the highest compliment to you to her like that's yeah yeah you don't you never want to be the person that brings something to the party and they don't eat it but uh, in that particular case, I would love if she would have just got to eat her own cake. Long story for a simple thing, I made a birthday cake underway, and she didn't get to eat it. Yeah. Well, next time you just drop it up. You can't, like, slip it underneath the door. You just gotta, like, knock, knock, knock. Sorry, I know it's, like, four in the morning, but here's your cake. Like, yeah. I don't want all the chiefs to, like, go all vultures on it and just... I mean, they were probably eating that thing with their hands. They were probably, like, grabbing that thing with their hands. Like, in, in my head canon, I think somebody, like, took a slice and was like, I'm just going to eat this. And then once you cut it, it's open game. Oh, yeah. Everybody's like, oh, you got... Because you'll be in the mess decks. You'll be at sea, and you'll, be, you'll, like, hear that they have cake, and they're like, ooh, they got cake. And then you, like, you walk in. Hold on a second. But, yeah, you know, you're at sea, and you're like, oh, yeah, cake. Um... But do you have a favorite recipe to make? Do I have a favorite recipe to make? There's a tough question. Um, hmm. I really like to, um, I like to challenge myself. So not really because my favorite recipe is just seeing something like, I just made croissants. That's unnecessarily difficult. So I, I don't know, I just want to be challenged. I think the uh, thing that I get the most compliments on, and this is so simple for for all of the cookie things that I make, is chocolate chip cookies. And I challenge you, the ship, your viewers, anybody who wants to uh, battle me at chocolate chip cookies, we can we can get to it. Chocolate chip cookie off? I mean, let's make it happen. I've, I haven't tried yours, so I need to try your chocolate chip cookies. But I don't know. I just I, I agree with you. I like challenging myself, and I think that it's it's. For everybody that listens too, I mean, it's a great thing to go out there and I I, I love Food Network. Alton Brown's my favorite. I like Alton Brown. Alton, Alton Brown's great. He's like a dad. And I and I appreciate that he kind of digs into the the cooking science a little bit more so than a lot of the other cooks. Like I'm. Yeah, sure he's like Bill Nye, the Science Guy right. of Food Network. Um, and he's just he, he's very dad like. He's got very dad energy. Um, but. I, I like Food Network recipes. America's Test Kitchen's really great. I'm a test cook. You are a test cook? Yeah. I love test cooking, too. It's great. Like, um, test cooks are super important because, like, you f- you find those recipes that test cooks like you have come up with, and you're like, damn, 
this is amazing. And it's like, how do people figure this thing out? Um, so, I mean, that's impressive. Um, but I, I challenge everybody at home, too, uh, just like you, just like me. Um, I, I try to do at least one new recipe every week. Like um, because you got to explore and you got to try new things. And that's, you, you don't know if you don't like that recipe until you try that recipe. And then maybe sometimes you're like, yeah, you know, I really just don't want to do that recipe again. And it's not that it doesn't come out great. It's just, you know, it's too challenging, too annoying. The ingredients are hard to get. But sometimes, like, the most challenging recipes are actually kind of the most fun recipes, too. Like, I, I made this, like, chocolate tart for, for uh, Thanksgiving a couple years back. Eight hours of work. Like, 72% dark chocolate, bit of sweet dark chocolate. Like, melting it, making it glaze, getting, like... Uh, corn syrup to make that glaze that you never really use corn syrup in regular type of cooking but yeah it, it came out excellent it was a pain in the uh, in the butt to make but it felt rewarding and it was delicious too it was amazing but yeah it's amazing bringing stuff to work and like having people really appreciate it but uh, earlier you were talking about um, your interest in sports too so yeah, yeah. how tall are you? I am six six and a half Okay, how, how much you weigh, if you don't uh, mind? Oh, no problem. I'm uh, somewhere around 275, 280. Okay, so you're basically NFL linebacker caliber size. Like, do you think you could, I mean, sack a quarterback in the NFL? Definitely. Definitely? Yeah. So were, were you strictly a linebacker, or did you stay? Did you go to the end sometimes? Um, I played tight end when I was in high school. Oh, do you mean? Uh, like defensive end. Defensive end. Um, we were odd front, so it's sort of the same thing in a way it's just like an odd front outside linebacker yeah you were the fourth a, linebacker off the edge yeah so I would just be a DNs if it was an even front so either either way it would it would work I prefer to come out of a two-point stance which is weird but I could if, if I played in a different front I would be a weak side DN yeah how do you how do you create that momentum out of a two-point stance it's don't don't fall step and I like that um, now you have to pay attention if I'm exploding out of a three-point stance, you really know the direction that I'm going to come. So you can't, or so you can just anchor yourself in that direction. And from a two-point stance, you have to, since I can go any direction, and since I'm so wide, I can generate momentum. It would really, I would sort of lose the point, or I would lose the, the um, benefit of coming out of a three-point stance since I'm all the way at the seven, you know, seven, I'm, I'm so far away that me exploding for that first yard or half a yard or whatever, I wouldn't really get anything because before I made contact, I still have another yard. So I can build my momentum there. And I played a whole life of basketball. Like I was a running back when I was a little kid. So, you know, I was never not explosive. And I can just generate the same amount of force that I would get. Like coming out of a three-point stance, you lose all of your momentum in the first step. That's why you engaged in and, and go. But I'm building as I'm running, and you have to adjust. You gotta account for me because I might I might attack either one of your shoulders. I might go to the flat. I might stunt. I might, and it's easier for me to stunt as well. So I don't know. It's just more comfortable. It gives you a lot more options, too. Right. Yeah, three-point stance is pretty simple. Like, you're you're pretty much going to be slamming heads at the offensive lineman. Right. That's why those nose tackles usually do it. But, I mean, this is a great example for everybody at home. Like, 
just the amount of knowledge that you have about the game, but also, I mean, I, I really enjoy talking shop with you on, on uh, the game because you have a really, not only just the, the technical side of things, but you also uh, like talking about formations and how the game is developing and new athletes like, I mean, you know that I went to Penn State, so seeing Micah Parsons play and some of those really fast, just hybrid linebackers coming into the league, we really enjoy talking about that. Have you ever thought about a career in coaching after the Navy? Yes, I did. Um, and I don't think that, like with with coaching, I think I would want to either be on the field or be in the film room. But I don't know that I would want to do both and recruit. I think that would just be too many moving parts. Like I would want to be, I, I could see myself being like a quality control guy or, you know, or an analyst type person. But coaches, they do so much stuff these days. You know, they're, I don't want to be on the phone recruiting all the time. And then, then I got to go to practice then I got to crunch film. Then I, I just want to do a, one single thing and just try to master that. And the process to get there, I didn't want to be a, grad assistant for two years and then go somewhere and be an assistant tight end assistant tight end coach for two years and then you know I didn't want to travel down that path it was it seemed like it'd be fun to some degree but I wanted a real life that's a that's an interesting life yeah it's a long it's a long road to the top too and that's like it's the toughest thing because I mean you see coaches like Sean McVay and some of the younger guys like I don't they're geniuses it's amazing they're like 35 it's insane um, but, you, I mean, you talk about uh, your college career and all of that. What was it like being a college athlete? How do you feel about um, college sports moving? I mean, like today we're, we're recording and, I mean, basically college football is kind of – the entire landscape of college football basically exploded today. Semi-pro. Um, but, yeah, pretty much semi-pro now. Um, but, I mean, how do you feel about – uh, your time. What what was it like being a college athlete back when you played? How do you feel about college athletes these days, especially them that with NIL? And then, um, I mean, how do you feel about this whole development into basically semi-pro? All right. First, um, fight on USC Trojans. Move to the big to the big, and hopefully Oregon and UW won't follow. I think they are. Just need to get that out the way. So uh, my experience as a college athlete, it was. It was really a, it was a good experience. It's not what I thought it would be. Like I, I kind of thought I would just go and I don't know. I, in my mind, it was like being a entertainer or something, being a rock star, and I was just gonna be hanging out and being a rock star and 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 it, I don't know. Like practice never really factored into what was gonna be going on, so I just thought it would be games. But realistically, it's kind of similar to the Navy in that. Um, your whole day is programmed, so they're they're paying you, and they're gonna get their money's worth. So all day, you know, you're gonna get up in the morning, go to weights, go to your classes, go to meetings. They control what you eat, when you eat, when you study. Like your the whole your whole life is is under control, and that's something I didn't expect because in high school it wasn't anything like that. But it was good, like being under that rigor and, and experiencing some of that really probably helped me in the military as well. But it was a great time. Like I got to travel around, I got to meet a bunch of people and me coming from, I mean, I'm from California, so it's fairly diverse, but 
that said, it was a culture shock going to North Dakota. So that I help, I think that helped me grow as a person and being able to relate and uh, deal with people from different backgrounds. And so I, I love the experience. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. School, I guess I should factor that in. Um, it was kind of a cheat code with that as well. Because um, if I was to be mad at a college athlete, if I wasn't one, I wouldn't be mad about them getting a free tuition. I would be mad about them getting the edu- or the academic support. Because I had a note taker. I had, like, I don't know how, no disrespect to anyone who has, but how do people fail if you're a college athlete? Like, you have everything. Everything is set up. Like, no one has ever taken a test. No one has ever wrote a paper for me. But any issues that I had, I could have a tutor and a note taker for every single class if I needed it. So I guess it was college on easy mode to some degree. So that was my feeling on that. I, I loved it, and I would do it again, and I hopefully uh, I have children here soon, and they can go do the same thing. Now, for NIL, that's uh, – um, I I appreciate – because I understand the uh, financials of college sports or the college revenue sports at least – so, you know, many of them are generating millions of dollars and their coaches in some cases are making millions of dollars. So I think that in fairness to the amount that's being generated by the players, they should be able to monetize that. The issue that I have is it's to some degree became predatory in several different ways. One, um, the college athletes, they, I wish NIO was structured like this. They, you can benefit from your name, image, and likeness, but you're still an 18-year-old child, and we don't want people that might not have the best interests, you know, taking control of this. But you are probably not prepared to do it yourself. So I wish they would just take all of the money that they can make, and then whatever percentage of it, take that away, and then it somewhere like if you're just gonna put it in a I don't know some some account or some you know something interest bearing and let them have access to that following their playing career and that'll do two things one not having the immediate ratification of having say seventy five thousand dollars let's say as a, a high school athlete 17 year old it's gonna allow you to make more informed decisions about what you're gonna do with your future like I know that if this school is going to give me a hundred thousand dollars let's say and you know not counting interest or whatever by the when i graduate since it's not immediate and it's not you know that i don't get that gratification that taste right now then i can think about the school that i'm going to choose a little bit more objectively so i think that would help and it would benefit the student because man you gave me a hundred thousand dollars and i'm not saying that college athletes didn't used to you know i mean we were taken care of in our ways as well. But if somebody gave me $100,000 as, as a 17-year-old college freshman, I would have just bought a Corvette or something. And then now, how did that really benefit me as a person? So that's sort of how I feel I'm in the middle. I do think that they should be able to get their money, but the way that we're going about it and the regulation about it, like there needs to be an even playing field. Have you know This is a standard or really actually have it be NIL. Like a company has to benefit from your name, image, or likeness. So if you're gonna provide value to that company, they should be gonna pay you for that. 
and not have it be a recruiting tool. You know, right. obviously larger schools are going to have an advantage because they're going to be tied to you know other other companies or whatnot. But just having a booster, I'll kick you two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I'm spitting. Then you know, like, what are we doing here? You might as well just make an NFL minor league. Right. Yeah. It's essentially semi. Exactly what you're saying. Semi pro. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know. It, People were offering under the table back in the day, but it's more overt now. But oh, yeah. I agree with you. It's it's all about, you know, I was 17 or 18. What would I want to do with that money? I don't oh, know. Man. Definitely want to spend a little bit of it properly, and especially for those guys that might not have, like, a lot of financial management support in their lives. Mm-hmm. They're not getting that support. Right. So, you know, I think you bring up a great point. But wrapping it up. Okay. Um... Last question. Send it. I know that you probably had aspirations to make the league. Okay. Um, if you had made the league, who would you have wanted to, uh, to be your first sack? Oh, wow. There is a great question. Man, if you came up with that on the spot, 10 out of 10. Um, who do I hate the most in the NFL? Well, I'm a Raiders fan, so. Even though they left. I know, they, I know that hits hard. Yeah, I'm not. Feel like I'm in an abusive relationship there, <laughs> but uh, I guess whoever the current starting quarterback, who do I hate more? The, I hate the Broncos. I guess I don't know. I hate Russell Wilson. Yeah, Russell Wilson would work. He's in, he's pretty <laughs> No, I'm gonna say whoever the current Dallas Cowboys. Oh, Dak Prescott. Is. Yeah, or whoever it was, you know, at, at that when you know when I was doing it. Probably but, Tony Romo back. Yeah, Tony yeah. Romo. Yeah, probably Tony Romo, just to upset the world. Like, I don't, you know, some little part of me wants to wants to make everybody mad more so than I just want to celebrate myself. And I think the most people would be angry about me sacking Tony Romo. Oh, yeah. The star carries a lot of weight around oh, yeah. the world. Jer- Jerry Boy is a pretty wealthy dude. That guy. Definitely has definitely. high value. But, uh, hey, I, pre- I mean... We could talk all day about sports. I think we probably bored listeners because this is Sorry, not listeners. only just a Navy podcast, but also, um, you know, I really love your, your, your passion for sports and for cooking and um, mainly for being just a, a, a great all-around uh, person and leader. And I mean, you're just doing an excellent job. So thank I really you. appreciate you being on the Bodar Blast. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Appreciate listeners, it. thank you. And thank you, FCA One Hall, for coming on to the uh, podcast. It was a pleasure having you on. Uh, I, I told you right after the interview, I mean, we could have gone for two hours. Um, I have so many questions for you. And uh, you're, I, like I said, renaissance man of a person, somebody that could easily crush, uh, crush my spine <laughs> um, with just a simple tackle. <laughs> and just... Uh, gentle giant of a person so thank you for coming on to the podcast but getting to a segment um of the podcast before we close out uh decatur is going into new horizons so a lot of you are aware we just took a leave period for uh, household goods change uh as we are preparing for home port shift over to hawaii so uh it has been an excellent three years at least for me personally here in san diego um to all the families out there that are going through this change it's only temporary uh we will be out there very soon um and together again uh mahalo hawaii 
we are very excited. Uh, I'll, I'll at least have to learn how to pronounce that correctly. Um, but it, it's very exciting going to Pearl Harbor, getting to see Hawaii, and for a lot of the crew, uh, they're going to be living there long term and knowing that you live in Hawaii. So uh, we're very excited to go over there. Um, just wanted to say a word as well about Maui. Um, we are all um, devastated about what's going on in Maui, and uh, we about to move to uh, the state of Hawaii. We are um, all dedicated to the state of Hawaii in our new home, so uh, we have a lot of thoughts and prayers out for those people out there, um, and hopefully we can do as much to support them as possible. So uh, we are standing with Maui, especially as Hawaii will be our new home, and so hopefully things will slowly improve over there. Um, nature, unfortunately, takes its course, and unfortunately, it's the destructive course sometimes, but everything will regrow and rebuild, and that's the circle of, I, I hate to say the circle of life, but the circle of nature, and the cycle, and how things are die and then are reborn, and uh, hopefully Maui will eventually sprout back up very soon. So uh, we are very excited to move to our new community of Hawaii. And next time I talk to you, it'll probably be from there. So thank you for tuning in to the Bodar Blast. It's been a pleasure. I'll talk to you next time. I'm Lieutenant Junior Grade Daniel Ehrlich. I'm out.